The special promise from God is that I am personally with you. I'm right there. And I'm not going to leave you. So whatever, whatever is invoking fear in you, just remember, He's with you, right by your side. He's not, he's not going anywhere. Hi, my name is Michael Tuck, and I'm the associate pastor here at Bacon's Castle Baptist Church. We are a local church in Surrey, Virginia, dedicated to making disciples of Jesus Christ. This is the weekly podcast that we put out for our local church family and the church as a whole. We hope you enjoyed this week's podcast. You know, last week I was, I was telling you about how Isaiah is divided into two parts, the first 39 chapters and then the last 27 chapters. And I told you that the last 27 chapters are, are meant to be an encouragement to God's Old Testament uh, people. Uh, he meant to tell them he loved them and that he had not given up on them, even though they were, have, they were going to, because he's writing this prior, they were going to be exiled by Babylon for 70 years. And uh, see, so he's, he's trying to tell them that I have not given up on you in spite of the fact that you've been scattered and that you're all over the known world of that day. And uh, I told you that Isaiah's prophesying, he was, he was prophesying for a people who would live 170 years outside of when he's actually writing this prophecy. And, uh, and it was meant for them, namely, but that what God says in these chapters can also be an encouragement to us. I think it was an encouragement to the people of Isaiah's actual day, but it's also an encouragement to us so many years in the future. In chapter 41, Isaiah is speaking for God. This is actually God speaking throughout the text. And he is going to offer a challenge in the first part of the chapter, a challenge in the last part of the chapter, which is really the same challenge as the first part. And in the middle, sandwiched in the middle of these challenges to the Gentile world is going to be an encouragement uh, to Israel. And so we're going to walk through this text. We're going to divide it uh, into five parts, five pegs on which we can hang our thoughts or as God kind of hangs his thoughts, we're, we're going to look at these five different breaks in, in the chapter itself. And then at the end, I'm going to share with you an application for, for us 3,200 years later. So let's begin. The first part, we're going to call it a challenge to the nations, uh, to all the nations except to Israel. This is a challenge to all the Gentile nations of the world. So chapter 41, verse 1 begins, Be silent before me, coast and islands, and let peoples renew their strength. Let them approach, let them testify. Let's come together for the trial. Who has stirred up someone from the east? In righteousness, he calls him to serve. The Lord's the Lord hands nations over to him, and he subdues kings. He makes them like dust with his sword, like wind-driven stubble with his bow. He pursues them going on safely, hardly touching the path with his feet. Who has performed and done this, calling the generations from the beginning? I am the Lord, the first and the last. I am he. So as God begins this prophecy through Isaiah... 
He's metaphorically asking the nations, which he calls the coast and the islands, he's asking them to come before him for this trial, right? He's asking them to come before him. And actually, I think he's inviting them to a challenge. And I believe that his hope through this challenge is that the Gentile nations will see and repent and come to him. I think that's ultimately his hope. And the reason I say that uh, that this is a challenge for them to come to him is because really he could leave out the challenge to the Gentiles at the beginning. He could leave out the challenge to the Gentiles at the end. And he could just focus on the central part of this chapter, which is the heart of what he wants to say to encourage his people. The center of this chapter is going to be uh, devoted to, directed at Israel. But he, he has this first part and this last part because I believe his desire is for the Gentile nations to repent and to come to him. And can I say something that we've said for years, right? Which is this, God, God's heart has always been for the world, not just for Israel. He chose Israel for a purpose and a task, as we'll see. But his heart has always been for the world, and his desire has been that people everywhere throughout the world, all the Gentile nations would respond to him in faith. In his challenge, this is what he's asking them. And this is a metaphorical challenge. This is a metaphorical trial. He's basically saying, hey guys, consider this. He says, who has raised up this king from the east who is basically taking over the world? He's conquering the kingdoms. His feet are like hardly even touching the ground as he goes from kingdom to kingdom. His sword and his bow, they're pulverizing all the nations. Who has raised up this king? Well, the first question we ought to ask ourselves is, who is the king he's talking about, right? Who is he talking about? And some have suggested, and again, this is where interpretation, I mean, this is where interpretation varies, you know, as people look at the text and try to understand what Isaiah was talking about. Some have suggested that the person, the king that God raised up in the east, it was Abraham, right? That's a, that's a major belief. A lot of, a lot of folks believe that God was talking about Abraham in chapter 41, these first opening verses. I, I don't think so because it, he just doesn't fit the description here, in my opinion. For instance, this king is going to have a sword and a bow. We never see Abraham using the sword and the bow to conquer anything, right? Or any nation. So I don't think it's talking about Abraham. Probably the, the, the greatest, uh, the, the, the greatest suggestion or the most popular suggestion as to who this king is, is the king who will live 170 years from now. And that would be King Cyrus of the Medo-Persian Empire. He would be the one who would basically conquer the world. And he, as he conquered the world, what he would do is he would end up setting Israel free and sending them back to their home. But God's main point is this, when, when this, when this metaphorical trial comes together and the nations of, of the world consider what God is saying, He's asking this question, who has done this? Who has said this generations before it's happened? Who has done this, raised up this king who is going to conquer the world? And then He answers His own question to the Gentile nations or His own challenge. And He says, I did this. I, the Lord, have done this, and I've done it for Israel. 170 years in the future, God is predicting that he would raise up a king in the east, whom we believe to be King Cyrus, the Medo-Persian king of the time, and he raises him up. And generations before it would ever happen, God is saying it's going to happen. And I think the question that God hopes that the Gentile nations will ask is, 
How did he do that? How did he know that God, that this guy was going to come, right? And God answers his own question through Isaiah. He says, who did this? I did this. I am the Lord, the first and, and with the last, I am he. Eugene Peterson, Peterson paraphrases God's response like this, that, that verse. He says, he writes it like this. Who did this? Who made it happen? Who always gets things started? I did. God, I'm the first on the scene and I'm the last to leave. So his first challenge is, who raised up this king who's come forth conquering the land? And God's answer is, I did. And I'm telling it to you generations in advance. Then we have the response of the nations to to God's challenge in verse 5. The coast and the islands see and are afraid. The whole earth trembles. They approach and arrive. Each one helps the other and says to another, take courage. The craftsman encourages the metal worker. The one who flattens with the hammer encourages the one who strikes the anvil, saying of the soldering, it is good. He fastens it with nails so that it will not fall over. Instead of repenting, the, the, the Gentile nations of the world, when all this begins to happen, and in this metaphorical trial, and they're reading this, instead of acknowledging God and the Gentile nations turning to the God of Israel, it says what's going to happen is they're going to double down. And their idol, their idol makers, their, their God maker workshops will go into overtime, and they'll begin to produce more and more idol gods to defeat this king who's coming from the east and defeating their nations. He says, you know, and these idol makers, they're going to encourage one another. One of them will say, man, that was a great job. And another guy who does another thing, he'll say, oh, no, you did really good over there. And and he, and he basically, I think he makes fun of them in a way. Good job, good design. And they pound nails into the base of them so that they won't tip over. The nation, the nations of the Gentiles, they're not going to turn to God, even when, even though God, uh, uh, hundred and seventy years ahead of time, is telling them what's going to happen. They're not going to turn to the Lord. They're going to double down on their idols. And so here's God. That's the, the chapter. The prophecy begins with these challenges to the Gentile nations. But remember, this section really is about comforting, comforting my people. Isaiah 40 verse one. And so now God turns His words to Israel. And so we're going to find God's words of comfort to the nation of Israel. And there's so many things of comfort. I, I wrote five different comforting thoughts that God's going to give His people in these verses. Now remember. This is 170 years before these things are going to take place. And, and so when they begin to read this 170 years later, as I'll mention several times, they'll take great encouragement from this. But here's how he begins to his people. He says, they've been in exile for 70 years now, or they will have been. He says, I chose you. I haven't rejected you. So he he continues, but you, Israel, my servant, Jacob, whom I have chosen, descendant of Abraham, my friend, I brought you from the ends of the earth and called you from its farthest corners. I said to you, you are my servant. I have chosen you. I haven't rejected you. Now, here's people who've been in exile for 70 years. Y'all find it's not yet, right? That's still, that's still a hundred years away before they'll go into exile. It's still another 70 years that they'll be in exile. But 170 years prior to that, God is saying to them when they read it, I have not rejected you. I chose you. And, 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 and so here's what God is saying to them. He's reminding them, 
I chose Abraham and I chose you. I chose you to be my nation. I chose you to be this special nation that would have a relationship with me that when everyone would see, they would know who the true God is. They would know what I'm like. They would know that I am the only God. I chose you to be the blessing to all the nations. I chose you through whom the Messiah would come. I chose you, Israel, and, uh, and I have not rejected you. What a word for them after 70 years of being exiled in Babylon. This is one reason why most, most everyone believes that the king of the east is Cyrus, because it's Cyrus who's going to uh, decree that they can go home and they can return to their land. God is making clear, I chose you and I haven't rejected you. At that point, anyway. The second thing is, I will help you. Verse 10, do not fear, for I am with you. Do not be afraid, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will hold you with, uh, I will hold on to you with my righteous right hand. This is one of those favorite Old Testament verses. This is quoted a lot. You've probably heard those verses before if you've been in the church any amount of time, right? But basically God is, here's what God is saying. I'm going to help you. I'm going to hold you. I'm going to strengthen you. I'm going to be there for you. Now, these people are returning from Babylon, right, to a land that they probably had never been to, right? Some of the old codgers would be returning. There would be a few people that would return from the 70 year of exile and they would remember. But most everybody, this land is new to them. They, they, they're not going to know it personally. All they're going to have are their possessions on their back. And I, I'm guaranteeing you that they're going to be scared and anxious. And God is saying to them, don't be afraid. I am going to help you. He continues, I will protect you. Verse 11, be sure that all who are engaged, enraged against you will be ashamed and disgraced. Those who contend with you will become as nothing and will perish. You will look to them, uh, to those who contend with you, but you will not find them. Those who war against you will become absolutely nothing. For I am the Lord your God who holds you, holds your right hand, who says to you, do not be afraid or do not fear. I will help you. They have no army. They're, they're returning home. This hodgepodge group of people for, have been in Babylon for 70 years. They're returning home with no army to a city that's been destroyed, that there's no walls for their protection. 170 years, and God is saying to them, I will contend for you. I will fight for you. I will protect you. Now again, he's writing this here for 170 years out. But 170 years out, when Cyrus says, okay, you can go home, and they get their group together, not everybody goes, but everybody who goes, they march towards Israel, and they would be, they would be reading this, and they would say, God is going to protect us, and guess what? This is exactly what happens. They get home, you know, those of you who know your Old Testament history, they get home, and what do they find? They find that the walls of Jerusalem are all torn down, there's no protection, and there's a couple of guys, Sambalat and Tobiah, who definitely don't like them and don't want them there. And they, they begin to kind of attack them. You remember this? And God raises up a fellow back in Babylon named Nehemiah. 
Nehemiah is the cupbearer to the king. Nehemiah goes back and Nehemiah protects them. God protects them. God does it using Nehemiah. And they, and they rebuild the walls. And God does exactly what he promises to them. I'm going to protect you. And all of those, even Cyrus writes a decree and says to the people of the land, you are not to mess with them. God watches out for them. And Nehemiah, with God's, God's help, they rout their enemies. And you know, I wondered this week as I was working on this, I wonder if Nehemiah might have picked up the scroll of Isaiah and read Isaiah 41 and said, and just found encouragement in Isaiah 41. I wonder if he might have read it over and over and over again that God is going to protect us. The next thing he says, God, God says in Isaiah is God will provide for you. Verse 14, do not fear you worm Jacob, you men of Israel. I will help you. This is the Lord's declaration. Your redeemer is the Holy One of Israel. See, I will make you into a sharp threshing board, new with many teeth. You will thresh mountains and pulverize them and make hills into shaft. You will winnow them, and a wind will carry them away. A whirlwind will scatter them. But you will rejoice in the Lord. You will boast in the Holy One of Israel. Now, obviously, this is a metaphor, right? God's going to make them into a threshing board that will pulverize the mountains and the hills, okay? So this could be a metaphor for they're going to pulverize their enemies. And, and, and that may be what God has in mind. But I'm going to take it as God is saying, I'm going to provide for you the harvest you need when you return home. I'm going to make you, I'm going to make you successful. I'm, I'm going to make you a threshing board that will, that will take the mountains and the hills and turn them into a harvest uh, of produce. And he says, um, he says, and you're going to say, see this. You're going to recognize this as what God has done for you. And the, and the last thing that I wrote down, I believe this is the last, and the last thing that I wrote down in this prophecy that God says to them is, God will care for the poor. So verse 17, the poor and the needy seek water, but there is none. Their tongues are parched with thirst. I will answer them. I am the Lord, the God of Israel. I will not abandon them. I will open rivers on the barren heights and springs in the middle of the plains. I will turn the desert into, into a pool and dry land into springs. I will plant cedar and acacia and myrtle and olive trees in the wilderness. I will uh, put up put juniper and elm and cypress trees together in the desert so that they may see and know and consider and understand that the hand of the Lord has done this, that the Holy One of Israel has created it. Now, folks, listen, these people are returning in poverty. There is no social security network. And God is reassuring them, I won't abandon you. I will provide for you. I will, you know, your poverty, and, and I think the water is a metaphor here. He, he's saying, you know, the, the, the poor lack water. And it could be he's talking about literal water, but maybe the water is just God is going to provide for their needs in their poverty when they, when they come home. When they go back to the land, he says, I'm going to, I'm going to provide all kinds of water. I'm going to turn the desert into an oasis, plant all kinds of trees. You know, he can do all that kind of stuff, right? Because he's God. And that's what he says he's going to do for them. And again, he says to ev everyone will see and know that I am the Lord, that I am God when they see what God's going to do with the return of Israel. So, as we're breaking down the prophecy, challenge to the Gentile nations, a response from them, double down on idol making, a word to Israel, but I've got you guys. 
I've got you, and I'm going to provide for you. Now he goes back to his challenge to the nations. Verse 21, submit your case, says the Lord. Present your arguments, says Jacob's king. Let them come and tell us what will happen. Tell us the past events so that we may reflect on them and know the outcome, or tell us the future. Tell us the coming events, when we will, and then we will know that you are God's. Indeed, do something good or bad, then we will be in awe when we see it. Look, you are nothing and your work is worthless. Anyone who chooses you is detestable. So God challenges the nations again. He says, give it your best shot, guys. Prove to us that you, your idols, prove to us that you, your gods are gods. Prove to us. And he gives them some specific ways to prove it. He says, tell us how past events fit together today to affect our present. Tell us that. Show us how all the past affects the present. Then he says, hey, if that's, if you can't do that, tell us, tell us the future. What's going to happen in the future? He says, by the way, if you tell us the future, we'll know you are gods because only God knows the future. And so he says, tell us the future. And then he says, then just do something, anything. Do something bad. Do something good. Just do something so that we'll know that you guys are for real, right? And then he says, he makes this kind of statement, but you are nothing. You're worthless, you know, and anybody who puts their trust in you is detestable. And I didn't know what the word detestable meant, so I looked it up. Detestable means deserving intense dislike. That's what detestable means. So God says, anyone who puts their trust in you, worthless, nothing, idols, you, you are deserving of intense dislike. I, I really like to think, I'd, I rather like to think of people who trust in a piece of wood or a poor plastic mold. I'd rather like to think of them as having some sort of mental illness. They're just plain stupid, right? And, um, and uh, of course, but I, I know people think of us that way, right? Because we put our faith in a God we cannot see, and people would say the same thing about us. God ends by giving his own response to his challenge. Okay, remember, written 170 years before. I, I know you tire me of saying that. But here's what he says, verse 25. And he goes back to the man of the east. I have stirred up one from the north, and he has come one from the east who invokes my name. He will march over rulers as they were mud, like potter who th- treads the clay. Who, who told about this from the beginning so that we might know? And from times past, so that we might say, he is right. No one announced it. No one told it. No one heard your words. I was the first to say to Zion, look, here they are. And I gave Jerusalem a herald with good news. Remember, he's, he's, he's writing for 170 years out. Who's the herald of the good news? It's Isaiah. It's Isaiah. Uh, look, I, I gave you Isaiah to herald this good news to Jerusalem 170 years earlier. That's Jimmy's paraphrase of what was just said. When I look, there is no one. There is no counselor amongst them. Amongst them. When I ask them, they have nothing to say. Talking about, now he's talking about the idols. When I say something, they don't reply. Look, all of them are a delusion. Their works are non-existent. Their images are wind and emptiness. Remember, he's writing this, I think, in, in part to the Gentile world, trying to, to prompt a response of repentance that they might come to the God of Israel. He brings up the king again that he mentioned before, this king who would take up his name, who would be a conquering king. 
Well, that conquering king was King Cyrus, who conquered the known world and restored Israel to the land. He would provide what they need to rebuild the city. He would welcome them back from all over the empire and encourage them to go home to Israel. And when the time comes, God says, remember this, you heard it first here. Actually, he says, this is the only place you heard it. You didn't hear it anywhere else. You heard it here. I'm telling you now in advance so that you will know I have done this. And when I look at an idol, no idol declared anything. No idol did anything. And God says of them, your idols are non-existent. Their images are wind and emptiness. All right. So that takes us through the prophecy. Hopefully you were, you were able to follow the gist there. When Cyrus came on the scene and eventually declared Israel free to return home, I, I, I said this already about Nehemiah, but I imagine the people of Israel read Isaiah 41 a lot. They probably remember, they didn't have a Bible like we do, so they memorized it, they probably passed it around, they probably quoted it to each other a lot, because this chapter is their pipeline of hope. It's what's telling them, it's telling them what God is going to do, and that God had not given up on them, that he was going to restore them to the land, he was going to still continue to use them. So what is the takeaway for us? I mean, for them, it's obvious, right? I mean, what an encouragement. But what about for us? What's the takeaway for us? Is the takeaway idols, is it that idols are nothing? <laughs> you know, is that the takeaway for us, that idols are nothing? I, I don't think so, even though there are still people who today who believe that a block of wood or a carved stone or, or a molded plastic overlaid with paint and gold is actually some sort of God. Right, But most of us are too sophisticated for that. We're Westerners. We're civilized. right? We, we, don't, we, we don't believe. We might not believe in God, but we definitely know that a block of wood is not the creator of anything. We definitely know that a molded, plastic, painted idol is not the creator. We, we know all that. So I don't think that's the takeaway for us. But I think I got an awesome takeaway for us 3,200 years later. Let's go back to verse 10. So if you have your Bibles, turn back to verse 10. And I told you verse 10 was a favorite Old Testament verse, right? Because it begins by telling them, verse 10, Do not fear, I am with you. Do not be afraid, for I am your God. Again, in verse 13 and 14, Do not fear, I will help you. Do not fear, you worm Jacob, you men of Israel, I will help you. Why is he encouraging them to not be afraid? What would they have been afraid of? Why would they, why would they, why would they have fear? Why would he be constantly reminding them in that center section, don't be afraid, don't be afraid? Well, again, this, this is where I'm, I'm, this is Jimmy's thoughts, but I'm pretty sure that they might have been afraid of the culture around them. They might have been afraid of the Babylonian culture, although they had lived in it for 70 years, right? So I don't know how hostile they would have considered that culture to them. Whatever hostility there was, they would have learned to live with it after 70 years, right? But now they're returning home, and I'll bet you they're fearing the culture that's back in the homeland. Again, remember, most of these people haven't been there. 70 years have gone by. They have been born and raised in Babylon, and all they know is Babylon. And so I imagine they're probably a little bit afraid of the cultures around them when they're returning home. 
I imagine they might have been afraid of their changing circumstances. Think about this. They're leaving all that they know. They're leaving Babylon. Remember, remember was it Jeremiah who told them, seek the well-being of your city when you're going to exile? The prophet Jeremiah told them, and they had done that. And they had built homes, and they had built businesses, and so many of them didn't even, they didn't return. They didn't want to leave Babylon. They didn't return and come home, right? So they stayed there in Babylon. But those who were returning, man, I imagine they're a little bit afraid of their changing circumstances. They're leaving everything that's familiar to them and going to a land that I imagine was kind of scary. What would it be like back in Israel? How would they live? How would they eat? I mean, they hadn't planted a harvest. How would they eat? You know, their changing world would have caused them fear, I think. I feel certain their poverty would have been fear-evoking, provoking. There were no banks. There was no retirement funds. You know, they, they were leaving their businesses behind, just taking whatever they could pull in a wagon, probably. That's all they could take with them. And so I imagine that they were probably afraid of how can, how can we make it with, with what little provisions we have. And, and so here we are 3,200 years later, and I think those three items cause us to fear too. I mean, think about it. As followers of Jesus, we fear the culture around us. For years, the culture has supported our Christian, our Judeo-Christian values and views. The culture has gone along with us and, and reinforced that, but not anymore. Today, the culture is changing. The culture is actually shifting away from us, not even, not even not supporting us, but shifting against us. And, you know, we can be afraid of that shift in culture. According to LifeWay, they did a research here recently, 7 out of 10 pastors, 70% of pastors believe that there's a growing sense of fear within their congregations about the future of the nation and the world. Additionally, more than 3 in 5, 63% say that churches have a growing dread about the future of Christianity in the U.S. around the world. Again, that doesn't make it so just because church leaders think it is, right? But this is true. Fear is the greatest emotion that we try to avoid. As people, we, we just don't. I mean, fear is that one thing we just don't want. And if it's not culture, our change in circumstance can still fear that that new that new job, that scary diagnosis, that new divorce or recent divorce against your will or, or our church family is going to be experiencing change in the next year or so. Ann and I are going to be experiencing change. We're all experiencing change. And, and change can bring about a sense of fear in our lives. And if it's not culture or circumstances, I think our lack of provision can cause us to be afraid. And I thought about this. You know, let's be a realist here. Most of us have never known want. I mean, we, 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 we've known want of, man, I would really like to have that new car. We've known that, not having that want, right? But when I'm talking about want... You know, where you don't know where your next meal is and you're not eating meals and you're living out under a bridge. No, not most of us have never known want like that. But let's, let's be honest. What if I lose my job? I think we can be afraid of where's my next car house payment coming from or my next car payment or something along those lines. We can be afraid like that. So how do we quell our fears? How do, how do, what do we do with our fears today? Well, I want to go back to that verse and I want to tell you what God said to them. And, and I want to show you, and hopefully I'm going to even prove it, that what he said to them applies to us. And it's how we should address our fears. So let's go back to the verse again. Verse 10, do not fear 
for I am with you. Do not be afraid, for I am your God. I will strengthen you, and I'll help you, and I'll hold on to you with my righteous right hand. Now there's some promises that God makes to them, three of them actually. And in these three promises that he says to them, this is what I want you to do with your fear. I want you to douse your fears with these promises. And I want you and me to do the same. So here's the first promise. The first promise is a promise of God's presence. Do not fear. Look at your text. What does it say? For I am with you. It's a promise of God's presence. He says, don't be afraid, Israel. Don't be afraid as you leave Babylon and return home. Don't be afraid because I am going to be with you. You're my people. I haven't rejected you. I am with you. Now, that's a promise to them. Is that a promise to us as God's people of Jesus' kingdom? Absolutely. I mean, it gets repeated over and over and over again in the New Testament. Jesus said, I am with you until the end of the age. He also said, I'll not leave you as orphans. I'm going to be with you, but I will come to you. If God is for us, who can be against us, Paul said. In Hebrews, we read, he will never leave you nor forsake you. I tell you, listen, when fear begins to rise in you, because of circumstances, changing circumstances that aren't good, or because the culture has and something has turned against you, or um, you lack, when fear begins to rise in you, this is what you do. You take out this promise, God, you're with me. You're with me. You're right here with me. I'm not alone in this. You're going to walk with me in this. The Bible says that you're never apart from God's presence. You're always in God's presence. He says to the, to the sinner, you, you, can't, you can't escape God's presence, right? But when I talk about God being with you, I'm not talking about that. I'm not talking about God's uh, omnipresence, the fact that he's everywhere and so he's thus. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about this special promise from God is that I am personally with you. I'm right there. And I'm not going to leave you. So whatever, whatever is invoking fear in you, just remember, he's with you right by your side. He's not, he's not going anywhere. And, you know, and I thought about this, you know, so, and I would say to Jill, if she watches this, Jill, God is right there with you. Or Donna, and you seem to know this so well, Donna, God is right there with you. Or Mario, God is right there with you. Martha, God is right there with you. Or Matt and Meredith, God was right there with you. I could probably go around this room and use all of your names, and there'd be a reason that you'd know why I'm saying that. Something in your life. But God is with you. I, I, I love to pray this. I love to say this. I say it often. I pray it often. God, you are not a million miles away. You're not a million miles away in your heaven. You are right here beside me and with me. And when you're praying, he's right there with you. Don't be afraid. Here's his second promise. Do not fear. I am your God. And this is a promise of belonging. This is a promise of possession. You belong to me. You are mine. I am your God. That's what he tells them. You are my people. I have not rejected you. I am going to rescue you from Babylon. I'm returning you. We're going to have a, we're going to have a, a, a fresh start here, right? We're going to have a fresh start. I, I'm with you. 
God, God calls them his people. Here's what he says. He calls them his people, his servant, his chosen ones. And he says, I haven't rejected you. That's Israel back then, right? But what about us today as God's people in Jesus' kingdom? Does he say the same thing to us? And the answer, you know it. The answer is, he says the very same identical thing to us as his people in Jesus' kingdom. Here's Peter. You are my chosen race a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. For you were once not a people, but now you are the people of God. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. God is your God. You are his child. He is your father. So when fear begins to bubble up inside of your heart, You need to just wash it back down with this promise. God, you're my dad. You're my father. You are with me. You you love me. I belong to you. I mean, so many New Testament verses and, and, and talks from Jesus and others. But let me just, here's a couple. Here's John. He says, see what love the Father has given to us, that we should be called the children of God. And that is what we are. The reason the world does not know us is they don't know him. 1 John 3, 1. Or Paul, we are the temple of the living God. Just as God said, I will dwell in them and walk with them. I will be their God and they shall be my people. Therefore, come out from the midst and be separate, says the Lord. Do not touch which is unclean. And I will welcome you and I will be a father to you. And you shall be my sons and my daughters and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. We need to fix our eyes on this truth. He's my dad. He's my God. But more importantly, I belong to him. I belong to him. He belongs to me. Isn't there a hymn? Isn't there there a chorus of a hymn? I belong to him and he belongs to me. Because he is my God, I don't have to be anxious. God is watching over me. I don't have to, this is in my notes, so I got to say it. That doesn't mean that that what you go through isn't going to be hurtful. It doesn't mean that what you go through isn't going to be sorrowful or whatever. But what it means is that God is with you. Every moment of every day and every instance, he's there and you belong to him. The third and final promise is God's power. Do not fear. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will hold on to you with my righteous right hand. God uses three statements to basically say the same thing. I will equip you. I will enable you. This is the idea. I will give you what you need when you need it in that moment. That's what God is saying. And it's the promise of, it's the same promise of the end of Isaiah 40. Remember it? What was it? What was the end of Isaiah 40? Young men may become exhausted, but those who wait on the Lord will, will run and not grow weary and they will rise up on wings with eagles, right? It's the same identical promise. I will carry you. I will equip you. I will enable you. I will provide for you. I will help you. I am your God. And that was for Israel, but it's for us today as too. Uh, for us too. Acts 1.8, but you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you, shall re- and you shall be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and even to the remotest sins of the earth. You shall receive power. God actually gave us a powerful person to dwell with us and to help us, to be there for us, to, to, uh, to convict us, to encourage us, 
to speak to our minds and hearts, to exhort us to press forward and to equip and enable us when we can't. I was telling somebody, we were talking about this just yesterday, and they were talking about how something I had said encouraged them, which was, you know, at some point I, I said something like, I didn't use this, but you know, the thing that says, uh, God helps those who help themselves, right? Thoroughly unbiblical. The Bible says God helps those who can't help themselves. All right. However, however, and this person was sharing with me, it greatly encouraged me that you said, I should be giving it my best because God uses my, my faithfulness and my efforts at, at, at what he's called me to do. And, and I, I think that's true here, right? It's not that we just passively sit by and do nothing. God is simply saying, as you walk through whatever you're walking through, I am going to equip you. I'm going to enable you. I'm going to be what you need during that time. And that's a promise for us. It was a promise for them, and it's a promise for us. So when culture around you, beloved, shifts negative, and circumstances go south, and provisions run low, here's what I think God wants you to remember. I will help you. So do not be afraid. Don't let fear overtake you. Speak to your fears, the promises of God. Have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not tremble or be dismayed. For the Lord your God is with you wherever you go and whatever you go through. Thank you so much for listening this week. If you have any questions, you can email them to Pastor Jimmy at baconscastle.com. Also, check us out on YouTube and Facebook to get to know us and see what God is doing here in Surrey. Be blessed. Be blessed.